everyone. Are we on? We are on. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Giant Steps with Doug Van Dorn. And I am here with the distinguished director, the preeminent producer himself, Rudy Landa. How's it going this week, Rudy? What is it that I said last week? The Bolivian Oblivion? The Bolivian Bohemian, I think. Uh, <laughs> the Bolivian Oblivious. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's good. We hey, we finally uh, we finally got a little bit of winter happening over here. You yeah, we got a little bit of snow last week too. You you've already got snow. I'm over here having, oh, yeah. uh, having no 80s. You know, and you've already yeah got... yeah winter for you and winter for me is a slightly different thing. I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. But we did have a little ice on the car this morning, so it feels legit. You know. Now, did I tell you that? Um, so I'm taking these guitar lessons with the famous doctor of guitar, Kenny C. Kenny C. And uh, we've been we've been going through uh, Travis picking, and so I think for the first time ever, I'm able to play leader of the band with nice Dan the man with the actual Travis pick and getting the thumb in there. So that's pretty cool. Are you ready to give us a little sample or not yet? No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, man, I'm a little hurt that you didn't ask me for lessons, you know. You know, you didn't offer. I didn't even know you taught lessons. <laughs> what, so. what was Kenny offered? <laughs> well, I actually, I asked him if he knew anyone that taught bass lessons because my 12-year-old uh, girl, she's like yeah. totally into Rush. And this is a funny story, man. So I don't even know how this happened. Her and her next-door neighbor friend who's, I don't know, nine or 10 decided that they want to start a band. And so, oh, really? Yeah. So they tell her parents and they're like, well, what do you want to play? And her kid says, I want to play a tambourine. And my kid says, I want to play a bass. So next thing I know, my kid comes home with a bass guitar, electric bass guitar with a, an amp. They bought it oh, for yeah. her and they bought their own daughter, a tambourine. They <laughs> <laughs> have one neighbors like that. Yeah, I know. Me too. I mean, Great it was completely that, crazy. So I said, well, we can't that. let this go to waste. And she needs to learn how to play the bass. So that's where I, I knew that Kenny taught guitar. I wasn't even planning on taking lessons. And Great I said, hey, there. hey, uh, you know anybody that teaches bass? Or you know any good books or anything? He goes, well, I, I teach bass. So I said, well, what, you know, what are you charging and whatever? So I decided, well, I don't want to take some lessons and, and see if I can learn the actual Travis pick for the first time. Good. Yeah, yeah, it's good that way. All, all the guitars, all the guitars, and all these podcasts are actually legit. They're there for a legit reason, you know. They're actually there. Yep, in the oh, background on the so on the I'm right. Pretty sure that so far everybody that's been on this podcast plays guitar. Think does Derek it. play guitar? I'm pretty sure he does. Probably does. Does Brian play guitar? Yeah, I didn't think about that. I don't but, know if Brian. He might play guitar. Yeah. Everybody, a lot of the, a lot of these, you know, common like-minded people like us are, are guitar players. Either play guitar or just, play at guitar. You know, it's necessary, man. It's necessary. I agree. All right, so let's get into the show. But well, before we get into the show, I got to tell you about a uh, one of my favorite podcasts out there. The guy's name is Mister Ballin, and uh, this what? guy has blown up. He started a he started a show in 2020 when everything was locked down. His last name is. Alan, his middle initial is B, so he calls it the channel Mr. Ballin. And he tells the stories of this strange, dark, and mysterious. And so he always has this like button thing. So in honor of Mr. Ballin, I'm going to tell everybody, since we're trying to build this channel, 
that I want everybody to go on, you know, wherever, whatever platform they're on and subscribe to this, subscribe to Giant Steps, but go to the like button and pretend that it's the Tower of Babel. <laughs> and then go over to the cornerstone and make sure that you push it as hard as you can to remove it. That's right. That way the whole edifice will come tumbling down. And there you go. There you go. He always does things like that with a like button, so I always thought that was yeah. pretty cool. Is, is it like a little animated button? Is that what he does? I don't know. Yeah, he, he might have that every once in a while, but he, just, he always says some funny thing about the like button that doesn't even make sense. You, you brought up you brought up um, the Cylons last week or something. I can't remember what it was. Remember? But, the Cylons? Yeah, yeah, you brought that up. It was something had the, the sounds of the Cylons or something like that. Oh, yeah, that's a song from Muse. That's what it was. That's what we were talking about. Yeah, exactly. So I got this, I've got this gamer chair going, right? And I hate it. And I'm not going to lie to you because it makes me look like I've got it some looks kind cool, of like, though. But it looks like the, it looks like a Cylon chair. You remember what was, it, what was his name? <laughs> it does kind of look like right? a Cylon chair. By your command room. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sidetracked. But as you were saying. All right. So, so we've been talking about what, what are we going to do? And, and I decided I wanted to do fairly early on in this podcast to show somehow on eschatology. And so I'm going to be really careful about how I say this at the beginning, because I want to say that this is going to be a show on the last days, the last days. Now, why would I be careful? It's because a lot of people, when they hear eschatology, they'll think end times. And in my mind, and we'll talk about a little bit about this here in the beginning. Um, I think a lot of people, when they hear the, the words end times, at least I do, they think, something very soon in our own future. But last days could mean that, but it doesn't necessarily have to. So there is a uh, text in the book of Hebrews that starts off with this phrase. It says, in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And the word there is where we get the word eschatology from. And so he calls the last days, these last days. In other words, right now we are in the last days. And Peter says the same thing in his sermon at Pentecost, where he says that he quotes the prophet Joel, and he says, in the last days, your sons and daughters will prophesy and all this stuff. And then he, he quotes some of the passage, and then he stops at a certain part, the part of the main judgment. And it's almost like, it's almost like the last days were inaugurated, but, but the culmination, the consummation of them hasn't yet happened. And so, uh, you know, this was a, a little bit different view of the of the eschatology than what I grew up with. And, um, you know, you and I kind of came together with the giant thing, and, and we've talked about that a bit. And the whole idea of eschatology is never too far away, and we've talked about it a little bit. And, you know, I, I grew up with the view, kind of a dispensational view of pre-tribulational rapture and premillennialism. And, um, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about that tell you know where are you at on all that well um and obviously i'm saying this for the viewer because uh, you know where i stand <laughs> um yeah I definitely i definitely was raised um with a with a pre-trib you know dispensational dispensational viewpoint um in as much about six seven years ago i did a comprehensive film on on the pre-trib or the dispensationalist uh, view of the end times. And we literally picked apart um, 
every aspect of that, did a timeline, a specific timeline of, of all the events. Along the way, along that, um, along that path for me, I kind of morphed a little bit in my views where I was 100% a solid um, pre-trib guy. I actually left myself open to the to the possibility of of a mid trip and obviously with reasons that i you know that i can that i can back up now i am seeing um along that path as well much like my journey with the uh with the nephilim um there there were a lot of eye-opening things about the way other people interpret it as well so while i am not necessarily um and I have to watch how I say this as well. I'm not necessarily inclined to ditch the way that I that I view things. I am definitely not um, opposed to hearing why my brothers and sisters uh, interpret it differently. Um, and as, as I've always told you, as long as I know that we're in lockstep with the non-negotiables that we that we both have, yeah, then I have a you know I have I'm I'm, I'm open-minded to at least hear how um, how other people interpret their version of. Or, or, or to hear their eschatolo eschatological views. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. Eschatological. You bet. Eschatological huge, views. Huge word. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, one of the things to say about this is that, um, you know, our guests, I think we've had Malachi, we've had Derek and Brian on so far. Mm -hmm. And we haven't, we haven't released Brian's show, Brian Gadawa, but it's funny because I know where I think all three of them stand. I may be wrong with Malachi, but actually I think he's premillennial historic. Yeah. And I would say that, uh, it, Derek is, Derek's probably dispensational, although I don't know, but he's certainly premillennial and Brian's postmillennial, uh, you know, and later on, I'm sure we'll have some guys that are amillennial. And so I, I have friends that are in all of these camps totally. and the non-negotiable is that Jesus is going to come back in the future, uh, that he will return to judge the living and the dead. I mean, that's what the creeds talk about. How we get there has been a matter of debate since man, since the very, very earliest records that we have in the church. And to be perfectly honest with you, um, I'm even more forgiving than that. <laughs> you know, I know, I know, I know there's a lot of people that, um, that absolutely it's not even on the radar. They don't, they don't even think about, about, you know, end times or eschatology. Oh yeah. Um, my non-negotiable is that you, know that you need jesus uh as your savior that's that's really my non-negotiable really at the end of the day you know um is that that in our theology in our interpretation of theology that we never um that we never inadvertently even downplay the importance of of how urgent that is you know um i've, I've heard in the in the in the critique if you will or the I don't want to say criticism, but maybe criticism, but in the critique of the of the uh, <clears throat> pre-trib pre um, view eschatology um, is that, um, you know, their fear tactics and and it's and it's honestly really in, in my view that if, if it's inducing fear, it, sh it shouldn't induce fear. The, the return of the Lord and no matter no matter what. <laughs> no matter what version of it you believe in it. Um, if you're a believer. <laughs> if you're a believer, it should never yeah. cause you fear. And if it's causing you fear, then there's, that's probably a trigger to look, to look inward, you know? Um, no, no, no critique, no criticism, no pointing fingers, no judgmentalism by saying that, but the return of the Lord should be something in whatever flavor of it you want to believe in it. The return of the Lord should be something that we long for the way the, the, that a bride longs for the groom. 
So those are those are my non-negotiables. Is that we're ultimately that we all believe in in Jesus as 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 our as our savior. You know. Yeah, I mean, he's the only he's the only hope that we have through this life. He's the only hope that we have in the afterlife. And and so yeah, that's a very good word. Um, you know, so growing up, I heard that there were three views of when Jesus will return. There was pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. And for the longest time, I thought that that was all there was. And then all of a sudden, one day... Yeah. And, yeah, so, okay, so fairly yeah. similar in the way that we were raised with that. At some point in time later on, I, I heard that there was something called millennial views. And that that some of these millennial views didn't even believe in a rapture at all. And that really threw me for a loop. I had no idea how to deal with this because I n- had never heard such a thing before. So all of a sudden my, my view expanded from like this tribulation thing, seven years to dealing with the, the whole thousand year thing. And that Christians had disagreed with this. So we're going to, we're going to explore a little bit, this whole idea of the millennium and then how it is that I read uh, the book of Revelation, which I've taught three or four times and preached through it once. And, you know, my hope is that people will um, just expand their thinking and and learn to see what some other people believe, because, you know, I, I, I'm in a weird place. I, I'm around reform people who almost all of them, not all of them, but almost all of them in my circles are all millennial. But yet I'm writing books for giants and almost all of them are dispensational. And so it's like, I get all the people who are who are dispensational. They keep asking me, well, what do you think about it's going to happen with this in the tribulation, this in the tribulation? Well, I'm not necessarily dispensationalist. And so I kind of try to skirt around the issue. But I want to, in this program, help people understand why I, I've taken a little bit different view than what people are used to. But I want to say that with a caveat, okay? And the caveat is this. I think that when you take, and we'll go through these views here in a moment so people can understand a little bit better what they are, but I think that if you take the three or four main different views, okay, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial, and then dispensational is really kind of a fourth, but it's a view of premillennialism. I think that at the end of the day, they all have room for something at the end of time that would look like a great tribulation, and then Jesus somehow judges the living and the dead. In other words, I think that it, it, as we're writing out our charts and our maps and our graphs and all this other kind of stuff, we're trying to figure out what's going on in the future, that we're putting maybe the, the timing of things in different places, but at the end of the day, we still have something that could be some kind of a, a great tribulation sort of a thing that happens before uh, either, depending on your millennial view, either the judgment or the second coming. And I think that's important to say because a lot of times people will poo-poo anybody who starts trying to talk about what's happening in our days um, and uh, and say that, you you know, don't go around trying to predict the future. And, and they really, they downplay the events of their own times. And quite honestly, here's the deal. At some point in time, and it may not be our lifetime, but at some point in time, Jesus is going to come back. And if that's true, then before that happens, I think every single one of these views has the ability to see that something bad could happen. So I want to say that because I don't want it to make it sound like it, the views on this particular thing are necessarily all different because I don't think that they are. So 
that said, I want to I'm going to screen share something for us. There's a chart on the four millennial views. Now, this is something that um, this is about the easiest chart I have seen to be able to explain the different four views because it's really complicated stuff. But essentially, yeah. and we're going to try and explain this for folks uh, who are not looking at a screen because we know that this is going on Apple just as much as it is on YouTube. But if you can get over to YouTube to see this, it could be helpful. Either way, I'll try and explain it. So we've got we've got on the screen four different millennial views. So this is dealing with in Revelation chapter 20, verses one through three, this idea that for a thousand years, Satan is going to be bound. So the thousand years is the word for the millennium. That's where we get the millennium idea from. And so it's from this passage that we get these different divergent views of when is the millennium, what's it going to look like, what's going to take place, and so on. So they all start at the cross, and then they're all, in, on this chart, they're all a one-dimensional line that goes forward to the last judgment. Okay? So cross to last judgment. And the question is, what comes in between? So... Let's start off with the view that that uh, you know you still hold to some degree, and that I grew up with, which is pre-tribulational dispensational premillennialism. And you can see that's the second one from the top. And the idea is that you have you have this time between the cross and whenever the tribulation starts. That really you could call it the church age or whatever, but it, we don't really need to label it for here. And at some point in time, there's going to be a rapture. And then that rapture is going to usher in seven years of what they call the Great Tribulation. And then at the end of that seven years, then you have um, Jesus coming back with his church to usher in or to bring in a millennial reign that will last for a thousand years. And then that millennial reign goes for a thousand years, and then it ends at the last judgment. But just before the last judgment, there's a there's a um, Satan is let let loose from being bound, and so uh, he he gathers his forces from the four corners of the earth to wage war against Christ and his people, and then Jesus stops it, puts an end to it, and you have the last judgment. So because that's the pop view, I kind of stop start with it. I mean that's the view of Left Behind, that's the view of Hal Lindsey that that's become so popular in the in the culture, right? Yeah. So the second view would be the one that's on top of it, which is also premillennial. So there, there's not much difference here. Uh, you could call this post-tribulational rapture view, I suppose. Although in that case, I think the, the, the rapture and the second coming would be basically at the same time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. But the idea there is that um, you have uh, the cross and then you have this long period of time until a tribulation starts. But instead of Jesus taking the church and rapturing out of the world, and so the church is not in the tribulation, instead of that, you have the church living through the tribulation. And then at the end of that tribulation, whether it's seven years or not, it depends on who you're, who you're talking to in that camp. Some see it symbolically, some don't. But uh, whether it's seven literal or seven symbolic years, at the end of that, then you have the second coming, Again, so this is just like the first view. And then at the second coming, Jesus returns to earth and ushers in a millennium that lasts for a thousand years. And then at the end of the millennium, again, Satan is un unleashed, unbound, and he rises his forces from the four corners of the earth, and Jesus puts an end to it, and then you have the last judgment. 
And at the end of the last judgment of those, you have at the end of both of those, you have ushering in the eternal state. Okay. Clear as mud or is that all right? Yeah. No, uh, for me anyway. <laughs> okay. So let's go to the third view and we'll call this post-millennialism. Now, this is what I had never even heard. There was such a thing. Post-millennialism. What in the world does that, does that mean? So again, you have the same timeline. You have the cross and you have a some period of time. Okay. And at some period of time, uh, you have the millennium starting. Now, there's not a tribulation that's in front of that. Uh, it right. ju- that doesn't mean that there's not tribulation. That doesn't mean that there's not suffering in the world. It just means that, that they're not Organized focusing tribulation. in on some kind of a great tribulation prior right. to the millennium. Okay? So then the millennium comes, and whether it comes gradually or all at once, you know, differences of opinion, I suppose. But at the end of the millennium, then you have, rather than just the last judgment, you have the second coming. So the difference between a post-millennialism and a premillennialism is that the second coming comes before the millennium in premillennialism, and it comes after the millennium in postmillennialism. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the, the second coming and the last judgment are separated by a thousand years in premillennialism, but in postmillennialism, the second coming and last judgment are the same moment. Right. And then that ushers in the eternal state. Right. Then you have the last view, which is uh, called amillennialism. Now, this is the view that I probably am the closest to myself, although I'd call myself optimistic in the way I view it. <laughs> um, it, it this I, I hate the term, okay, because the term was given by people who are not amillennial. And technically, awe is a negation. It's a term of negation. So like an atheist right. is somebody who's right. against theism. So amillennialism means it, means it makes it sound There's like no you're man. against the millennium or that you don't believe there's a millennium. Right. Right. But nothing could be further from the truth. Of course, all millennialists believe there's a millennium. They just take it, rather than taking it as a literal thousand years, they take it as symbolic of a, of a whole period of time. And that whole period of time would be the period of time basically between the cross and the second coming. So that entire time frame then is the millennium. And then at the end of that millennium, just like in post-millennialism, Jesus comes at his second coming and the last judgment. So in a sense, amillennialism is actually just a special kind of postmillennialism because right. instead of the second coming right. coming before the millennium, it comes after it. Right. Okay. So that's kind of, I mean, that's in a nutshell, that's what those, that's what the differences between those views are. What the different, but yeah, the, 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 these are the, these are the, the, uh, the cards we're playing with. <laughs> These are the cards we're playing. This, this is what's out there in all the systematic books to try and think about. There's not really any other views out there unless you just want to be a, a preterist, a full preterist and say Jesus already came back, you know, in 70 AD and we're in the <laughs> eternal state or whatever, which is right. that's basically just heresy. No, nobody, nobody believes that <laughs> if you believe in the creeds at all. So that's what we got. That's what we have to deal with. So when you when you see those charts, like have you heard postmillennialism and amillennialism talked about like that? A little bit, not 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 in deep discussion, because normally, as I've said before, um, and and I also have to to <laughs> I also have to kind of put this out there um, because because you and I uh, you know kind of like running the in in the, the same circles with the same people and whatnot um, that this program is not a debate. Just so everybody knows and we're and we're clear, this is me listening 
to um, to an alternate point of view from what I from what I personally have been raised with. Um, but don't be expecting me to be here getting in arguments with Doug because I'm not going to do it. So <laughs> so um, but um, normally when I when I have um, when I have encountered a millennialists, it's it normally has been in the context of I don't want to talk about this with you because I don't believe like you the end. You know? Yeah, no, I know. I hear you. So, so, um, so no, and admittedly, I don't know much about, about the, how they justify it, what scripture they use, what the, what the mindset is. And I, and I, and I am interested in, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what that is. Okay. So uh, hopefully people have, you know, you can grab, grasp your head around all, all we're trying to do there is just set out what the views are and hopefully at least they can make a little bit of sense of what they are. The question of how you get there, another story. Um, and in order to get at that, I'm gonna I'm gonna move here now from what are the four views to the idea of how it is that we come to the book of Revelation and how we read it. Okay, so remember we got this whole idea of the millennium from the end of Revelation in chapter 20, just a couple chapters before the end. That's the only time the word millennium actually appears in the entire Bible is in Revelation 20, which is interesting. Like it's such a major doctrine that we have three labels for and we all blow into different camps for and, you know, everybody damns each other about because they don't hold their view. It's one verse in the Bible or two verses. Yeah. I, that's kind of crazy, actually. Yeah. No, it is. It is. Well, and, and, and what's interesting is that that happens. That happens. And that's not the only um scenario or the only uh, occurrence in which in which stuff like that happens as you know the word trinity is not in the bible but we all believe in the trinity you know um you know there there are there are things that we don't there are things that by necessity we've had to introduce into the lexicon um and and you're right we will actually <laughs> we'll bash each other over it on on things that yes they're they're you know speech is man-made because it, it's necessary but but the concepts behind them are you know are solid you know and you know bringing up the trinity really that the point of that is that some some of these concepts are so important that even though they're mentioned only one time or even the word doesn't appear at all they are worth um thinking a lot about and and holding sternly to a position uh and so i guess that's probably why we do it Absolutely. I'm going to try and I guess I can't share the screen. So I'm, I'm going to read uh, from the book of Revelation now as I introduce this idea of how it is that we come to the book. OK, so typically and this is, again, the way that I was raised and I really didn't run into anybody else who even questioned this for a, for a long time. When we read Revelation, we start at the beginning of the first chapter, first verse, and we go to the end of the book last verse, and we read it chronologically. So chapter two happens after chapter one, chapter three after chapter two. This is the way we read most books anyway, right? And it's a very natural way to read a book. So I'm going to read Revelation, and this is going to be a Revelation, Start. we'll start in 1919. Uh, and I'm going to go through in into chapter 20, and I'm going to come up through the releasing of Satan. And just think about what we're hearing here as chronological. So one, follow, one event follows the other. So starting in Revelation 19, 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered together to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. 
and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive in the nation's any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so we'll finish there. So as you hear this, the, you know, as on a linear reading, what you have is this great last battle. And then after that great last battle, chronologically, you see this angel holding these keys to this abyss. He, he takes Satan, he locks him into prison, and that's for a thousand years. And then when he does this, all of a sudden these saints come to life and they reign with him for a thousand years. And then after that, Satan's loosed and then he tries to attack the church and then Jesus defeats him. All chronological. So it's on a chronological reading that you get premillennialism and it makes perfect sense. Because you have a war, then you have a millennium, then you have Satan loosed, and then he's destroyed. So, if that were the only way to read the book, I would say that it would be really, really, really difficult to overcome that reading. And I would probably be still be a premillennialist. However, <laughs> however, it's not the only way to read that book. So, what I want to do here is, I'm gonna, this time I can share the screen. I'm going to take us to... Um, I'm going to take us to the book of Revelation, and I'm going to help people see some different ways of reading this book. So, the first thing that we need to do is we need to understand uh, a little bit about the structure of how John has written this book. And it's really, it's actually super incredibly mind-blowing. And when I first discovered this, it comes from a scholar named Warren Gage who did his doctoral dissertation on the Gospel of John and started looking at the parallels with his other book, Revelation, his other long book. And he started noticing some really, really crazy things. But before we get to that, what I want to say is that the book of Revelation is written as a chiasm. 
And here's the deal. Most people have never heard of a chiasm. So what in the world is a chiasm? So if I say, uh, you can't have any pudding if you don't eat your meat. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding. That's right. Yeah, you know, what's that from? I think the second time he says, how can you have any pudding if you don't? Yeah, right. <laughs> I think I got it backwards, right? <laughs> and then, so that's Pink Floyd, right? That's right. It's a chiasm. Meat pudding, pudding meat. Meat pudding, pudding meat. If I were to put your name in the middle of it and say meat pudding, Rudy, pudding meat, now all of a sudden I'm focusing in on you while on the outer ends I'm repeating what I said in an inverse relationship. So if I say the first will be last and the last will be first, that, that's a very short chiasm. And the reason why you do this is for memory and repetition, uh, helping people remember what you said, and for also bringing home an emphasis. So the center is where the emphasis is at in the way that this, it's just a literary device that they teach you in the seminaries. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's all over the ancient world. So if I were to say the first will be last, Rudy, and the last will be first. What I've done there is I've focused on you and I've said, I want you, Rudy, to understand what I'm saying. So the center actually becomes the most important part of the chiasm. So what we learn when we go to Revelation is that the book itself is written chiastically. And the very center of the book of Revelation is where Satan is cast out of heaven in chapter 12. So on either side of Satan being cast out, but right before that, immediately before that, I have a woman fleeing into the wilderness. Immediately after it, you have the woman fleeing into the wilderness. It's repeating itself. Right before the woman goes into the wilderness, you have the dragon who's in heaven. And right after she's in the wilderness, the second time, you have the dragon persecuting the woman. So you have the dragon theme coming up. Right before that, you have the woman clothed with the sun. And right after... You have the woman's seed keeping the commandments. Before that, you have the two witnesses, and after it, you have the two beasts. Before that, you have the 144,000 saints and the seven trumpets. And after it, you have the 144,000 saints, saints and the seven angels. Before that, you have the seven seals. After that, you have the seven bowls. Before that, you have the seven epistles to the seven angels. And after that, you have the seven angels with Babylon and Jerusalem. And then that leads you to the very beginning of the book with a prologue and the very end of the book with an epilogue. So in other words, what John is doing is he's writing the structure of the book so that it's repeating itself. Pretty mind-blowing. What, what's, what's really mind-blowing is when you come to the screen that I'm showing here, I've color-coded it like a rainbow because it's so small that you can't, you know, I have to, I have to really zoom in on it in order to get to it. But what Gage showed is that this chiasm works on a level of about, I think it's something like 50 or 60 layers. <laughs> all the way from the middle of the book, all the way out to the ends of the book. And this is down to within one to two verses on either side of the book. That's amazing. Yeah. So you've got these parallels that are going, you know, the, the book opens, these things must happen quickly. The book ends, I am coming quickly. Yep. The next thing the book says is, hear the words of this prophecy. At the very end of the book, he hears the words of the prophecy. 197 verses later. Yeah. The next thing, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The next to the last thing, Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. <laughs> this goes all the way That's to amazing. Revelation 12, 
where you have the dragon, the serpent, the devil, and Satan thrown down yeah. to deceive the world. And you have salvation, power, kingdom, and authority of God, and the accuser is thrown down. So thrown down is the very center of the book of Revelation. Yeah. So what might this mean for the way that we read the book? I don't think that it necessarily means that it can't be read, read linearly, but what I would suggest is that this means that it could very well be read uh, in folding on itself, okay? So the, the themes are repeating each other. Absolutely. So if I read something in chapter 12 that I then read repeating in 16, what maybe they're talking about the very same thing. And the reason why is because he's writing it as an emphasis to tell you what he's just said. Okay, so let's take this to another level, which is the idea of cycles. This actually kind of takes it to a level of not just folding it in half, but actually running on itself seven times over. Seven is a huge number in the book of Revelation. Yep. So imagine that you're in one of these turrets in a castle, one of the round walls, you know, where they have the staircase. Yep. And the staircase is going up and at each level where it hits the specific outward front of the wall, you have a window. And then as you're climbing up the staircase and going around the circle, but you're going up, you come to the next window and it's literally directly vertically above where you just were. So you're on the same vertical plane. However, you're standing above it. So you have a higher view. Right. Okay. Now you keep going up higher and you come to the third level. You got even a higher window. So you, you have seven levels of this that are taking you to the very top. And these would be the seven cycles of revelation that are repeating themselves. And essentially, the idea is, and of course, people debate whether this is true and how valid it is. I think it's, I think it's pretty valid, personally. But basically, you have the idea that each cycle is beginning sometime around the beginning of Christ and his ministry, and it ends at the second coming. And so then when the next cycle comes around, it begins somewhere near the beginning and it ends at the second coming and it begins, goes back. And so within one verse, you're moving from the very end, some horrible, terrible battle to all of a sudden it starts over. Now, maybe it's telescoping in on something that's not at the beginning of Christ's ministry. Maybe it's sometime, you know, much later down in history, but nevertheless, it's taking you from that point to the end of the second coming. And then it starts over. And I think that the best way that you can actually see this is to go to the book of Revelation and go to Revelation 12, which is in the middle of the book, which I said is the middle of the, of the way that the thing is written. Yep. And when you read Revelation 12, you find this crazy story of this. A great sign appears in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun with moon under her feet, on her head a crown of 12 stars. She's pregnant. She's crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth and another sign appears in heaven and a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and diadems. He sweeps with his tail. A third of the stars are cast under earth and the dragon stands over the woman who's about to give birth so that she, when she bore her child, that he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations of the rod of iron. Now I'll just stop there because it, this goes into multi layers of interpretation. But when you hear, a child born of a woman who's going to rule the nations with the rod of iron. Who does that remind you of? Hopefully it reminds you of Jesus, the king oh, I, of I'm kings. Sorry. I, 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 <laughs> that wasn't a rhetorical question. <laughs> yeah. That was a rhetorical question. Yeah, yes, of course. Right. 
right? And so if that's the birth of Jesus, and and there's actually, you know, like Dr. Heiser has a video out there about how this is actually John's birth narrative, and it's kind of astral prophecy. He where was, um, what, what was what was Heiser? Where he where, where he stand? He he was. Um, he never told anybody where he stood on any of this stuff. Did he preach on it? He, I guess he didn't. No. Well, I mean, he went through Revelation, but he's like, I don't like any of the views. <laughs> Which, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know what view you, you have to have some kind of a view. I don't know what your view is, but it has to be right, something. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the point is that here you have Jesus in the middle of the book and it's his birth. Well, according to what I, the suggestion of the, of the cycles is that that's because chapter 12 is starting over. Okay, and it's going back from the birth. Now it's going to move forward until it comes to the Great War at the end of, I think, chapter 14. And then it will start over again so like it's when still, the un still, opening up of the seals up. or whatever. Okay? So this is one of the reasons why I think we have so many different views of actually when this happened. So did it all happen in 70 AD? Some people say that. Did it all happen over the course of the last 2,000 years in church history? All of church history is the unfolding of it. That's called the historicist view. Some people say that. Other people say, no, it all happens at the end of the Great Tribulation. Some people say that. Why? Well, I think it's because the complexity of the book is such in the literary way that it actually opens up for all those interpretations. Yeah. Every, everybody has a case to be made, and they would be right. <laughs> it, yeah, because it just depends on how you're reading the book. Right. So now here's the deal when we come to the millennium, is that when you compare the the... Revelation 12 in the very center here that I said was the center of the book with the dragon being thrown down and, um, and so he can no longer deceive the nations. Well, this is exactly the same language that's used in Revelation 20. Identical. Same exact, same, same exact language. So on the cyclical, cyclical reading, what that means is that chapter 19 doesn't come before chapter 20 chronologically. Chapter 19 is actually the end of a cycle. It tells you about the end of all things. And chapter 20 starts over again at the very beginning at Jesus' birth or his, his ministry, his first coming. So this then is how and why an amillennialist sees that the millennium is here today now. It's because chapter 20 starts at the first coming, not at the second coming. Because they're not reading it chronologically. They're reading it cyclically. And because chapter 12 and chapter 20 are paralleling each other with the devil, they're reading chapter 12 as saying the same thing that chapter 20 is saying. Yeah. So here's a dead question. air. When, Go when, ahead. When, um, for example, in the, in the, um, like you said, it is a mainstream view of the, you know, the, the um, dispensationalism is, is mainstream that you've got left behind and thief in the night and all that stuff. Right. Um, and so, so the the theology is taught, the doctrine, I should say, is taught. Um, you know, Wednesday nights. You know, we're going to do a study on the Book of Revelation, or you know, we're going to be do, doing a series on it. And so it's taught, and it is taught uh, chronologically like that. Um, is this how it's taught in churches that have a um, a uh, would it be post millennial? Post millennial, right? This, this particular view? The one I'm giving here? Yeah. Now, this is an amillennial view. I don't, all the, the postmillennialist view, I don't know. They, they can read it in cycles. The, early, the commentary I was reading earlier today from their view doesn't take it in cycles. Got so it. they but, may or may not. But the amillennial 
uh, believing churches would teach it like this and teach. I would say that probably most of them would, because I I don't know how you get to a millennium that's present today. If you don't. And has been present for 2000 years, unless you take it that way. Right. But what what, what I'm saying is, but is, is this how... I mean, obviously, at your church, I would believe, I would think that this is how you would teach right, people through religion. Right. But, but right. what I'm saying is, other churches, to your knowledge, other churches that that hold that espouses the view is, is, do they teach this method and 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 show these things like the layers and the? So yeah, some of them do certainly. Okay. okay. Now the view's been around for a long, long time, and some of the church fathers actually saw cyclical ways of reading the book. But I'm not sure that like Augustine, who's the one who gets uh, the most, either credit or. Um, doom for teaching it depending on who you are i don't know that he really that he that he knew about the cyclical way of reading it, but i do know that it was around back in his day yeah so whether or not uh, all millennialists look at it this way i don't know but to me this is the way it makes the most sense and it's how i teach the book mm-hmm. and i think that the that the literary structure of it is really telling us that this is how it wants very it to very eye-opening it's a very yeah. eye-opening so we can, I mean, you can do that. I'll show you one more thing here that I think will help. Uh, so are we still sharing the screen? Uh, we are. Okay. So are you seeing the same final battle? Or do uh, I need to, I think I might need to change that one. Yeah, I'm not seeing okay, Hold on. I'm still seeing the staircase. Yeah. Okay. So I need to go to Revelation 7. This should do it. So four four quadrants here. So basically, um, when you when you look at Revelation twenty verses seven through ten, now this is when Satan is let loose that we just read after the millennium, and you compare it to what we read at the beginning, where at the end of chapter nineteen, and then you go and compare it to chapter sixteen and the and the actual battle of Armageddon, and then you go and you compare that to chapter, Revelation fourteen. So I said that you know, most of these cycles end at the same place. Well, there's a reason I said that. It's because when you start comparing the language, you find that each one of them is talking about gathering. They're talking about kings of the earth. They're talking about torment and being burned with sulfur and wrath and fire. They're talking about the wine press of God's wrath. They're all using the same language to describe a war. So the question becomes, is it, the, is it four different wars that are all just being described the same way? Or are, is it one war that's being described from four different perspectives? And on a cyclical reading, uh, there would be one war that is being described from four different perspectives. So in other words, the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 16 would be the same battle as at the, begin, at the end of chapter 19, which is the same battle again as the one when Satan is let loose. So whether or not somebody takes this view, you know, that's up to each person to wrestle with it. But, but what I want to do is open people's eyes to see that I don't think all millennialists are as crazy as a lot of people think that they are. <laughs> um, one, one issue that, that needs to be addressed is how in the world could somebody believe that we're in the millennium today? Like, doesn't it say that Satan is bound? And yes, it does say that he's bound. But the question is, what is he bound for? from and what's he bound for what can he do what can't he do and my answer is that when you read the text care- carefully and you see what it actually says it says only one thing about what he's bound from doing okay so it says uh it in revelation 23 that he threw him in a pit he shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer 
until the thousand years are ended. And then you skip that and you go down to verse uh, seven and eight, and you see that he's let loose, he's released so that he can deceive the nations. So in other words, deceiving the nations is, is the heart of what he's bound from doing. So the question then becomes, is he deceiving the nations today or isn't he? And I think that this is where Acts is so important. And I actually think this is where the divine counsel theology can really help people understand my view anyway. When Peter's there on the first day at Pentecost preaching, and he gives this great sermon that I said at the very beginning was about the last days, who's there? Well, you read that there's Jews from all over the Roman Empire there. They're from Bithynia, they're from Pontus, they're from Cappadocia, they're from Rome. And all these Jews from these different places are there, and they hear the word, they're converted. They become Christians that day, they're baptized, and guess where they go? They go back to where they're from, they start telling people about Jesus, then the missionaries go out throughout the book of Acts, and they start telling the Gentiles about Jesus, and they convert. So we look back on this in 2023 and we go, well, yeah, of course they did. But if you're living in that period of time, and you're you, whether you're Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't matter. You know what the worldview is. You know that the gods of the nations are over these, over each nation, okay? And you know if you're a Jew that the prediction was that one day the nations would start flocking uphill to Mount Zion. In other words, they're going to start becoming believers, that's the way a Christian would read it. Okay, so my understanding of the book of Acts is that this is the binding of Satan and the nations are no longer being deceived. It doesn't mean that every single person is not deceived. It means that if God wants to save a Gentile from Bolivia or Sweden or Colorado or Carolina, he can do whatever he wants to because yeah. Satan has been defeated legally. Yeah. He no longer has that right, that power to deceive them, and they're being saved. And this is, this is the reason why I think that we're in the millennium today, because I think the binding of Satan is only for that purpose. So I can actually say that I think Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion right now, seeking whom he may, he may devour. Simultaneously, he's deceived from no longer deceiving the nations. Right. Those so are not mutually in other exclusive words, things. In other words, the corporately as a, as a nation as nations they the, legally the, the the ban on being saved if you will has been lifted exactly and and now god can come and in, on into any turf right so any of those gods turf that he wanted uh heiser has this great analogy of the story of the the leper um who goes to elisha yeah and he's naaman from syria yeah and he's he goes hey man i i hear that you can you can heal me in my leprosy and Elisha says, sure. He goes, well, okay, please come up here and heal me. He goes, no, you have to come down here to the Jordan River to be healed. And he goes, well, why? The Euphrates is a lot more beautiful than your ugly river. Right. Elisha says, no, you either come down here or you don't. Yeah. And the reason why is because God did not have the legal right in the territory of Syria that he had in the Old Testament land of Canaan. And this is why when Naaman is healed down there, he takes a whole wheelbarrow full of dirt and he brings it back to Syria, and he <laughs> makes a shrine out of that dirt from Canaan, and right. he worships Yahweh on it, right? Because that's Yahweh's dirt. So in the new in the new covenant, in the book of Acts, there is no more dirt. It yeah. doesn't matter. The time is coming. You won't worship me on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and truth.
Right. Well, this is all about that legal destruction of Satan. He's been defeated, and, and he's been bound from deceiving the nations. Yeah, that's very interesting. Absolutely. Okay, so that's that part of it. Um, I, would, I would also say that, um, uh, that me personally, I would have, have no problem in, uh, even, even as a um, dispensationalist, I have no problem in adhering to that analysis of the, of the spiritual, um, what's, what's the word? There's a word, the, the zoning laws <laughs> of the earth. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, no, right. No, absolutely. Earth, you know. I, I've never heard any dispensationalist um, get upset by that at all. No, that's well, really All cool. I'm saying is I'm adding cool. it in there so that I can say that, look, when I look at my view of the millennium, to me, this view actually makes sense of my view of the millennium and why really. I think that Satan is bound today. Yep. So one more thing I want to do, because uh, this is already a lot for a lot of people because it's a new material, is I want to go back to Revelation and I want to, I want to help people see this thing with the book of John. Because this is really... I just think this is amazingly cool. So essentially the idea is that not only does Revelation, the book itself, enfold on itself like a chiasm at chapter 12, but it's actually playing um, on, the book of Revelation is actually playing on parallels with the Gospel of John. So we can go to that, that screen now try and explain what's going on. So essentially, you have these parallels working in two different directions. You have them working chapter one of John, paralleling chapter one of Revelation. So John chapter one begins the word and the old creation, and then Revelation chapter, actually I'm going in the, in the opposite. Uh, well, so let me go in the opposite, okay? So they work both chapter 1 to chapter 1, but they also work chapter 1 to chapter 22 of Revelation, chapter 2 of John to chapter 19 of Revelation, chapter 3 of John to chapter 20, 21 of Revelation. In other words, they're going backwards. So the beginning of John parallels the end of Revelation. The end of John parallels the beginning of Revelation. And then it works the other way, so that chapter 1 parallels chapter 1, chapter 2 parallels chapter 2, chapter 3 parallels chapter 3, all the way to the end. And these are direct word correspondences. So let me, I'll just read a couple of them. That's uh, John, John begins, uh, John writes about the Word of God in John 1.1. 1, 1. In Revelation 1.2, John witnesses the Word of God. In John 1, 5, you have the light that shines in the darkness. In John 1, uh, Revelation 1.16, you have Jesus' face is shining like the sun. In John 1.14, we behold his glory. In Revelation 1, 5, and 6, um, he's the firstborn from the dead, and Jesus gets all the glory. You hear a voice, and you hear a voice. You hear, you see a stone, and you see a stone. And that's all in just in chapter 1. You go to zeal and zeal. You got, you've got knowing. You've got teaching of heretics. You, I mean, this goes, oh, bro, this yep. goes all the way through the book, the yep. whole book. But not only does it go forward, it goes backwards. <laughs> so that the beginning of John, uh, in the beginning was the word. The end of Revelation, I am the beginning and the end. Beginning of John, all things came into being by him. The end of John, uh, Revelation, behold, I make all things new. Beginning of John, the light shines in the darkness. The end of Revelation, there is a light. No need for a light because the Lord gives the light. That goes all the way through to the, to the end and the beginning of the book. 
You know, man, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I got, I got, I got to say this. This to me is such a slam dunk in the, in the, in the face of people. And I don't want to, you know, necessarily lump any category, but to anyone who would say that the Bible is just written by men, you know? Oh yeah. A, a million I mean, percent. I mean, I'd, I'd venture to say that, I mean, the, the, the amount of people that in Christendom that know about this is minuscule, you know, it's, it's um, to not see the divine inspiration. It's not like it was done to be like the, you know, like a, a highlight trick to get people to follow Christianity. I mean, this is a, this is a, a, by the way, this is an incidental that, that it takes someone like you to come along and, you know, shine a big spotlight on it. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's, that's, that's pretty unbelievable to me. Yeah. Oh, when you stop and try and contemplate how a mind could do something like this, I mean, it's one thing to do it forward, you know, parallel chapter to chapter four, but how do you do it both forward and backward? How could any, <laughs> how could any mind do that? I mean, I mean, I don't even understand that. So it wasn't, uh, remember it wasn't how a plot. I, it wasn't, a no, plot. no, 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 no. And I, and I'm bringing this up because I just think it's one of the coolest things I've ever come across oh, in man. the study of the Absolutely. Bible. Actually, the book of Acts and Luke seem to be doing the same thing, believe it or not. But that's for a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, remember how I told you that the very center of Revelation is Revelation 12, 9, and 10? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Satan deceives the whole world. He's cast to earth, and his angels are there, and he, and he hears a loud voice in heaven and saying, now salvation has come, and then there was thunderings. Well, guess what the very center of the Gospel of John is? It's the same thing. Wow. He hears a voice from heaven. People are hearing it. They said it's thundered. Another said it's an angel. And now the ruler of this world is cast out. Unbelievable. It's identical. It's yeah. identical. And it's literary, yeah. literally the literary center of John and Revelation. That's amazing. Okay, so the last thing I want to bring up here is I'm going to try and explain something of kind of my view of the tribulation and how, how I understand that. And to do this, I'm going to go to one more screenshot. This is going to be in my sermon on Daniel 12. All these are sermons that I did. Uh, they're up on our church website. And I want us to think about for a minute, you remember how we've talked about this, the difference between pre-trib and mid-trib? Yep. So what is mid-trib? Explain that view. So um, one, one thing that I started to jump in, but I, I, but I didn't, um, was that oftentimes the, the great tribulation technically happens after the midpoint of the tribulation. At the um, midpoint. Yeah, after after the after the the uh, the last the last trumpet, um, right? Because the first three years are like supposed to be peace, right? So you so yeah yeah sort of. I mean, you have the first the first three and a half years, you have the seal judgments and you have the um, the trumpet judgments. Now the seal judgments, um, they're not really. I mean, I guess they're lumped into quote unquote judgments, but they're more. I don't want to say symbolic. They're more landmarks. They're more more like like landmarks in the timeline. Like for example, the first one, the the first seal is basically 
the revel the, the the unveiling of who the antichrist is the man of sorrows you know um that's the that's the first seal so you have the you know you have the pestilences and you have the wars and you have you know the the, the sea turning to blood and all that stuff but but the vast majority of those things happen in the first three and a half years and the vast majority of them in one way or another um especially the terrible ones are man on man are things that man weapons that man has has devised um you know they, they basically all those judgments are long-term effects of a sinful world um yeah there are things like for example you know um wormwood hitting the planet and all that stuff which a lot of people interpret to be nuclear you know nuclear exchanges or whatever right um, right but what what's interesting and the reason what what changed my view on from being pre-trib to being mid-trib excuse me is that is it at the midpoint of the tribulation um when you get to the to the vile or the bold judgments then the tone of the judgment changes the tone of the, in the vile judgments in the in the um, dispensationalist way of interpreting it you literally have god pouring judgment on a world that rejected his son right 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 punishing if you will and so for me what made sense you know the bible says it although although a lot of the 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 scholars that study um the pre-trib scholars don't agree with this um the the bible straight up says it the the verse it's used to to describe the the actual you know the actual awakening of the of the dead in christ it says at the sound of the last trumpet that the dead in christ should would rise well that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation and the reason why that to me personally <clears throat> makes a lot of sense is because um nothing turns the human heart towards god like tribulation historically speaking that's that's just a reality people seek god when times are really really hard and so for me it makes sense to think that in the first three and a half years of, of tribulation like the world has never seen there will be a lot of people a lot of people like what you know they call tribulation believers or or, or people that come to know the lord during the tribulation that from a practical standpoint will have will benefit from there being other believers to disciple them to encourage them to not fall away um and 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 dare i say to to bring them into the fold again i keep going back to the to the very simple but very fundamental um scripture that says willing that none should perish all of it all of it all of it is god using every bit of his of using every last tool in the tool belt to get people to to come to faith to come to know him right. to repent yeah. you know and to extend every last branch and every last life vest um that he can so for me uh, again bouncing off the scripture that says you know that at the sound of the last trump the dead in christ would rise to me it makes sense that the believers that the church would still be around halfway into the tribulation before god says okay now these next to the judgments this is me punishing humanity for for uh, rejecting my gift of salvation you know so anyway right. that's my long answer to that so uh, the tribulation and dispensationalism is seven years correct yeah correct and so the idea would be that halfway between it would be three and a half years or whatever correct. and I, it, they get this from things like uh 
1260 days or times times and half a time don't they yes now ha- having said that um one thing that i was that i was corrected on by um i think it was ron rhodes or, or maybe it was um thomas ice might have been is that the rapture is not necessarily synonymous with the beginning of the tribulation the beginning of the tribulation happens at the breaking of the first seal uh, in again in in the uh, in the dispensationalist approach right right so um so it's not necessarily seven years from the rapture but seven years into the tribulation the tribulation could start a year two years after the rapture for all we know you know so the chart that i have up here i I asked you the question about mid-trib because um it gets at a lot of the time frames that are in this chart so you have in Daniel's um, 70 weeks, that kind of becomes the, the, the key to where the, the whole tribulation thing comes from. He, he gives this prophecy of 70 weeks, and I think he has seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then he has one week. And then he has in the middle of that one week, something happens. Mm-hmm. And so this is a time frame, and everybody agrees that kind of the first 69 weeks take you up until the time of Christ. Mm-hmm. The question is becomes really what happens with this last week. And uh, it's a week of, of sevens. And so it's essentially seven years. And so, you know, my, my, my honest opinion is that every single view has some kind of problem with this because you either have to insert some kind of a gap of 2000 years that, that, that is in between the 69th and 70th week, or you have to make the seven weeks be longer. So it has to go to 70 AD or, you know, somehow you're fudging with the numbers. And so the question becomes, well, is what's the best way to do that? And we all have different ways of doing it. So based within my own interpretive scheme that I've kind of given in this podcast, bringing up, uh, these different numbers. I just want to read some of them to say that there's a bunch of parallel numbers that are given. So the key for this was was Daniel 9, uh, 27. That's where he's talking about the 70 weeks. And he says that there's a strong there's a strong covenant. And I have Christ in the chart, but you know, some thinks it's antichrist that he's making a covenant with them. And then halfway through he puts an end to sacrifice, and then there's an offering and then abomination of desolation and, and that's right. in the middle of the week right okay but there's other there's other places that have the same time frame because a half a week would be three and a half years but it, that would also equate to time times and half a time so a time would be one year times would be two years and a half a time would be a half a year that's three and a half years mm-hmm. it's the same period daniel 7 talks about that daniel 12 talks about that um you have 1260 days that's actually the same uh, same period of time again. That's time times right. and a half time. It's three and a half years. Right. That's in Revelation 12 and Revelation 11. You have 42 months. That's actually the same time again. It's it's uh, right in Revelation 13 and Revelation 11. Now, the interesting thing is in this chart, I have one at the bottom, which is the thousand years. And the reason I have that is because, first of all, we said earlier that the thousand years only appears one time in the scripture. But I also said that in my way of reading the text, Revelation 20 parallels Revelation 12. And if that's the case, and if, if the numbers are also paralleling the way that the dragon is and the way that the binding is and deceiving the nations is, then that means that a thousand years actually parallels 1260 days mm-hmm. in that text. 
So you have this you have this weird way of talking about it all with different ways. Like, what's the deal with why why say forty two months and then why say twelve hundred sixty days and sometimes it's three hundred or thirteen hundred thirty five days and why say why say three and a half years and why say uh, you know, I think there's another point that says three and a half days or something. And like one is a thousand years. What, what's all that doing? So if the numbers are being used in any way symbolically, and I don't know that it, it means that they can't be also literal, but if they are at least symbolic, you, it's almost like you have a countdown. If you went from the biggest number, thousand, all the way down to the smallest, the three and a half, you have a countdown. It's almost like the clock of heaven is saying like a thousand, 42 months, you know, Mm -hmm. 1,200, totally. uh, counting down to the point where it's over. So I think that's one interesting way of looking at it. But the other thing that I want to say is that on my way of reading Daniel 10, so I don't, I don't think that that's a prophecy of Antichrist. I take that as a prophecy of Jesus making a covenant halfway through the 70th week, which is the new covenant that's cut in his blood where he makes an offering for sin at the cross. And Jesus's ministry lasted three and a half years. Okay. So if that's correct, and we all, again, we all have our different starting points for when we say that the time clock of the 70 weeks began. And so this is just one of you of many, but I, th- this is one that makes the most sense to me. If that's true, then we have the 70th week of Jesus ministry beginning at his, essentially his baptism. And then it concludes, this first half of it concludes at his death, which gives you another three and a half years left. And it's like, well, what do you do with that? So I come back to Revelation 12 again, where it says that the woman flees into the wilderness to be nourished by God for 1260 days. And I go, well, what's that? Well, that's the church. And so remember how I said that we have a parallel between John and Revelation? Why would that be the case? Why in the world would God inspire that insane amount of um, literary brilliance and parallelism? What does that mean? I mean, if, if there's something to this, it has to mean something. And what Dr. Gage essentially says is that the Gospel of John, and so you have to think about the metaphor of the church as being the body of Christ. So he's our head, we're his body. So somehow the two are connected, they're linked together. And what he suggests is that the Gospel of John is the head, Revelation is the body, and they're par- paralleling each other. Um, as it, because they're part of the same organic organism. And so the first three and a half years parallels the second three and a half years, because the first three and a half years is the earthly ministry of Christ that ends at his death. The second three and a half years is spiritual, it's not literal, it's spiritual, because the body is a spiritual body. It's not some kind of a physical body that you find somewhere like his actual body was. It's this, it's this church that's all over the, that's been around for 2,000 years, that's all over the earth, that some of them are in heaven. Yeah. And so how else could you talk about it other than in a spiritual way? Right. And so I thought, man, that's, that's a really interesting idea that the second Absolutely. three and a half years parallels... Um, the first three and a half years of the ministry of Jesus and that John actually wrote his gospel and then wrote the apocalypse to kind of show us that. Now that works especially well, I think on my view where revelation is really talking about what we've been going through for 2000 years, but I, I don't think it's exclusive to any of the views because, um, uh, uh, 
a preterist view that sees, you know, most of these things happening in 70 AD, they can still say that it's being parallel in the church. Uh, a view that sees, especially the church here during the tribulation can say, yeah, I see that still being paralleled in the church. But, you know, to me, I just, I, I just, these are some things that I wanted to bring out and make public to people um, to give it a different kind of an audience than what Dr. Gage gives, especially, I mean, to me, the, the cool thing is the Revelation John stuff and just the way that the literature is it's, read. Honestly, man, it is, it is absolutely mind-blowing, to be perfectly honest with you. And, I, you know, I, I, I'm one who thinks that the way that we should approach the Scripture is on its own terms. And, and if it's <laughs> telling us how it, it wants to be read, I'm going to do my best to try and help people see what I think that is. I'm totally open to other people giving me difference of opinion, but this is why, Rudy, I read the text the way I do. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm doing this kind of on the heels of what we did with Derek, because Derek's our good friend, and, uh, you know, he has an eschatology that I don't necessarily agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, we're able to talk and discuss, and this is why I said what I said at the very, very beginning of this, because I do think that even a view like mine, um, that supposedly is symbolizes everything and doesn't see anything literally whatever i think it's very literal i just think it's i just think heaven is literal i think it's i think yep. the spiritual world is a literal world Absolutely. i don't yep. right so um i think that you know my view has room for things to happen at the very end of the millennium and i actually have reasons for thinking that we could possibly be be at the end of the millennium at least if not now within the next 100 200 years i'm not yep. gonna you know, I, I can give an argument for it. I'm give not going to die on the hill a, for it. How much but. time do we have left, Doug? <laughs> well, yeah, you want to give it? Yeah. That's a whole nother. You, you would really like this on the whole. Give me 23 reasons thing. why it'll happen in 2023. The, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole end of the age thing is pretty cool. And what it, what is an age? Um, yeah. And it has to do with the great year and the platonic month and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, my point is that, that <clears throat> if we all have a view that, that can allow for something terrible to be happening at the end after the loosing of Satan, then strangely, weirdly, we could all actually be talking about something that could be true, even though we're putting different labels on it. Well, I'll tell you this, man. Um, this is really, really cool. Um, and it's something that I intend to keep reading on the, uh, the, the, the whole parallel between John and Revelation and the way, just the way that, is there a name for it, by the way, that it's been assigned the, uh, the, the whole paralleling the book ending or the, I mean, uh, yeah, other than just the chiastic relationship, the, I don't that, know. That's what it is. That's what I'm yeah, looking for, yeah. yeah. It's, that's very interesting. And, and to me, to be perfectly honest with you, uh, more so <clears throat> more so than necessarily challenging the way that I, that I view eschatology, it's definitely, um, I, I don't like to use the word a weapon in the, in the arsenal, but yeah, but kind of a weapon in the, in the arsenal from, a, um, from an apologetic standpoint. Oh, absolutely. The, of the Bible, you know, and that's, that is just really amazing. That's an amazing. Absolutely. Thing. Almost so worthy people... of doing a, a documentary on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you'd do a documentary yeah. on that, but <laughs> I know like one other guy that knows about it, the guy who wrote on it. So that's amazing. That is really cool. Very, very cool. Yeah. So if anybody wants to, you know, read more about that, uh, I have our sermon series online at our church website, rbcnc.com. And um, just go to the New Testament sermons section and go to Revelation. And the most of the charts I gave here today were in the very first sermon. That sermon is called, 
the apocalypse of Jesus Christ and introduction to Revelation. And I have those graphs all there. I also gave one from my sermon we on... Can them, we can put them on the description. Yeah. Can put all those links the final there. battle of Gog and Magog from Revelation 20. And then the other one is Daniel 12. And I this is the glorious hope. So those are all up there. Anybody can go and download the PDFs and listen to the we can, sermons. We can, put the, we can put the links in the uh, in the description if you want. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, that's a lot to take in. And it's been, uh, I don't know, an hour, 10, 20 minutes, I suppose, already. That so. flies quick. That went quick. It, do, it does. But no, that, that, that is really, really cool. Um, I... I'm trying to remember who it was. I don't think it was John MacArthur. I can't remember who it was. One of those one of those guys from the eighties that used to that used to do um without necessarily, you know, appealing to people on, on faith, what the what the chances were of the Bible you know, of, of the validity of the Bible and it and it was like it was a crazy, crazy um I'm trying to I'm trying to think of what the example was, but but one of the things was, you know, in order for the Bible to basically reinforce itself the way that it does from beginning to end, mm-hmm. you have to fill up the entire state of Texas with quarters, have one quarter painted red and randomly dive into the place where that quarter is red. You know, um, I mean, the, the 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 Bible in and of itself as a as a literary artwork is unbelievable. You know that the entire Bible does this, right? And now it doesn't do it in every single chapter, obviously. But when you think about what the Bible does at the beginning of the Bible, you've got the creation of the heaven and the earth. Yep. And then you've got the Garden of Eden. And you can put a dot, dot, dot right after that for everything else until you come to chapter 21. where, Or really chapter 22, 21 and 22 of Revelation. And guess what you have? The Garden of Eden returns and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So what it's done is it's created a giant chiasm really? from the first two chapters and the last two chapters, and everything else is the center. That's amazing. Yeah. I never thought about that. <laughs> um, <laughs> one thing that, I, that I've always felt is, is really, really crazy, really just amazing, is how the – is all the um, – well, scripted symbolism all the way across in terms of the – in terms of the – the plan of salvation or the or the concept of god's of god's grace you know the the nation of israel being you know enslaved you know the figure of jesus being moses coming to get us out of being enslaved take us out of egypt out of our sin into the promised land until you know into heaven crossing the red sea for crying out loud you know what i mean um so that that's always that's always blown me away that it's the bible is just so so full of of um of those little gems that should should give any believer that's my that's my thing man is that the that the bible again going going back to that doctrine of willing that none should perish um he he's just he he just makes it he gives us so many ropes to hold on to so many so many lifeboats so many you know uh, life jackets being thrown um and all we have to do is just is, is study it and believe it because it's there it's there and it's easy to see it it's not you know um it proves itself over and over and over again yeah i think my confession of faith says something like it is uh the scripture is self-attesting you know it's it's 
it's beauty. It's uh, the way, the majesty of the style, the, the whole thing is it's the word of God and it shows itself for what it is because it's the word of God. Exactly. Exactly. It's become my favorite thing. Everybody in my church says, well, come on, where's the chiasma in this passage? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Talk about them all the time. I just, I actually think it's just the way that the ancient mind worked. So our, our minds work very linearly. We're very mechanical in the way that we go about things, very like engineers, you know, we just from point A to point B and, and, and nothing else. But the, the ancient mind was much more in, enfolded in on itself. And one of the reasons why is because they're oral cultures. And so they have to be able to memorize and remember huge amounts of information. Oh, yeah. And you had yeah. to have all kinds of memory tricks to do that. And this is one of them. Um, but you but you are not saying by that that the book of Revelation was pre-produced to to be written that way. What do you mean pre-produced? In other words, he didn't sit there and lay it out to be able to tell that the, 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 his vision to write it out in a, man, in, in a way that it ends up as a chiasm. Well, so, okay, that's a tricky question. Um, I think that he probably did on one level. Like, I think that John was very aware that he was writing chiastically. However, I don't know that any human mind could comprehend the detail, especially of the inverse stuff that's going on with John. Like, it's one oh, thing to write <laughs> a sentence that's a chiasm. That's pretty easy. Pink Floyd can do it. Um, it's another thing to write a paragraph that does it. I've written sermons that do it very deliberately, intentionally. But when you start getting to a book level, it becomes really, really difficult. Now, if you multiply that on a level of another book, you've, you've just made it exponentially more difficult. Now, if you do it on the level forwards and backwards, you've now moved it exponentially to like a, a thousandth power. So well, my answer to your question so is that I think John did set out to write revelation chiastically. I really believe that. Like, I don't believe in, I'm not a dictaphone kind of a guy that God said, here's the exact words, put them down. And God inspired him to write it. Oh, but I well, think the spirit well, is working on a level that we can't even possibly imagine. But doesn't the book the, of Revelation literally says that God told him, write, pick up a pen and write? Well, sure, right. But write the things that you see. It doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to give you a bubble over a over a character of a cartoon character. And I want you to write the words that you see in the bubble. Mm -hmm. He's seeing visions, right? And so now he has to write down what he's seeing. But he has to organize those visions. Have you ever tried to tell pe people about the dreams that you had? It's tough because <laughs> they're so crazy. You never remember the beginning either. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's the the... To what level are you a dispensationalist? That would be for you know for me the, the you know the question po poised to me, where I I literally do believe when when there was divine divine inspiration and I and I actually believe it or not, um, kind of prove this by pointing towards the occult. You know, um, you, you're familiar obviously with automatic writing. I know you've heard of that. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know? So if the if the if the dark side is capable of doing that, then to me the inspir the divine inspiration can also work or 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 did when the when the gospels were written or the or the, you know or the Bible or the books of the New Testament were written, could work in the inverse as well. So yeah, I mean I guess it depends on to what to what level of a dispensationalist you are, you know. Um, <laughs> for, for me, and it's not to to me it just further reinforces the supernatural aspect of it. I think it's I think it's amazing. Yeah, there's no doubt the supernatural aspect of it is it's abundantly clear. Yeah. Abundantly clear, which is why I share it for people.
So you had enough for one day? I've had enough for uh, for half a day. <laughs> <laughs> for half a day. No, this is for time, time stuff. and half a time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've had enough for a time, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Let's end it. Let's. Um, we're gonna we're gonna finish it here because there's just too much more that we could talk about. We got many many programs and hopefully years ahead of us. Hope you guys enjoyed the program and uh, you know I'm gonna end you with that favorite proverb and I hope that this one really kind of has some meaning to you as you think about what we've just shown in Revelation and John especially because uh, Solomon said it's the glory of God to conceal things but it's the glory of kings to search things out thanks for listening to the program <laughs>